tomorrow night on PBS, an amazing documentary is going to be airing that shines a light on a chapter of our history that I dare say many of us do not know anything about. The film is called The Lavender Scare, and it is based on an important book of the same title by David K. Johnson. And in this documentary, we learn about a chapter in our history that officially began in 1953 with an executive order from uh, President Dwight D. Eisenhower, which essentially ordered the firing of all homosexuals working for the federal government. And this is actually an executive order that remained in effect for decades. And it led to the dismissal of 10,000 people from their jobs, people who were qualified to serve our country and to serve our government and who were dismissed in this way. And the Lavender Scare refers to the way in which this was related to the Red Scare going on at the very same time and uh, sprang out of that same uh, rampaging fear of, uh, of communism somehow entering our American life. Josh Howard is both producer and director of this remarkable film, which draws us back to that time and into the lives of just some of the men and women who, uh, whose lives were so adversely affected by this. And it is not only a, a, a very sad and troubling story, but also an inspiring one as well, because it is really out of this that the, uh, the birth of the gay rights movement, as we think of it, actually began. So we, we meet some people who uh, were really part and parcel of some of the first efforts to secure for the gays of America uh, their their civil rights. And I'm excited to have Josh Howard with me on the phone for the next few minutes to talk about his film, again titled The Lavender Scare. Josh Howard, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Well, thank you so much for having me. So how did you first become acquainted with this story of The Lavender Scare? Well, it was something I knew nothing about. I happened to come across a book called The Lavender Scare, written by David K. Johnson, who's uh, a, a historian, uh, teaches at the University of South Florida. And I was just amazed as I was reading this book. Um, I, yeah, I thought I knew uh, American history, you know, some gay history, but I had no idea the... Uh, extent to which the government had this uh, this procedure to try to identify and fire uh, every gay man and lesbian working for the government. And I was just uh, stunned as I was reading this. Tell us about the, the genesis of this film project and uh, and also say a word about how challenging it was to be able to tell this story uh, as richly as you do. Well, it was quite challenging because uh, you know a number of the people who were uh, first-person sources for David Johnson and his book, by the time I got involved in this, they had they had sadly passed away. David did most of his research during the 1990s. Um, I first read the book in uh, uh, 2009 um, and met with David. Uh, actually, the first time we met to discuss this project was on July 4th, 2009. So it is coming up on uh, 10 years. Since wow. 
we first uh, talked about turning this into a film. So th- that itself speaks to uh, how difficult it was to uh, to get this wrapped up. But it, it wasn't just a matter of finding the right characters and you know finding people who were still uh, available. But we had to raise money for the film, and that was a long, complicated process. But uh, really, the genesis of the project was, as I said, I, I, I read the book. I was happily retired, I thought, uh, from a long career in television news. Uh, but when I came across this book, it just seemed like such a natural for a documentary, and not just you know something that would make a good uh, film, but something that really needed to be documented. This story is just not known by people, and um, you know I was aware that if we didn't, uh, you know, the, the time to do it was then because the window, uh, in terms of getting people to you know, be interviewed, was was quickly closing. Right. I want to add just parenthetically that. Uh... Right after I watched your your amazing film, I called up my younger brother, Steve, who happens to be gay. I've mentioned him before over the air uh, in various contexts. And I asked him if he happened to know the name of Dr. Franklin Kameny, who is one of the principal figures uh, in your film. And uh, and my brother, who uh, is very well-read, had no idea who this man was or the importance that he had uh, in the in the sense in the in the uh, earliest days of of what we think of now as the gay rights movement, and so uh, there are all kinds of people, including people we might blithely assume already know this story, that in fact do not. So I'm so grateful that your film has been made. Well, you know, Frank is really an unsung hero of uh, of the movement. It's hard to come up with uh, another name of someone who contributed as much over the years. Uh, to the uh, to the gay rights movement as he did, and he is he is not well known uh, even within the gay community, and you know it's really partly a function of the fact that gay history is isn't taught in schools. Uh, only recently has there been some attention paid to it, and you know Frank is the you know he's the he's the Rosa Parks of the gay rights movement. Uh, here was an individual, a private person who had no intention of starting a movement and was was you know thrust into this and it was one of the reasons i really wanted to make this film to um you know pay tribute to to him and you know as these a very small band of activists in the early 1960s in the years you know way before stonewall who really did get the ball rolling on the gay rights movement for those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Josh Howard, producer and director of a remarkable documentary film that airs tomorrow night on PBS called The Lavender Scare, based on a book of the same name by David K. Johnson. It talks about uh, what occurred to thousands and thousands of gay men and women uh, in the 1950s and thereafter, uh, thanks to an executive order from President Eisenhower, which called for the dismissal of all homosexuals working for the government, uh, a systematic campaign that, uh, that devastated many, many lives. I appreciated, uh, Mr. Mr. Howard, the fact that your book, I'm sorry, that your film includes some historical context that takes us back to World War II and to the fact that uh, for many uh, young gay men and women, uh, World War II 
turned out to be uh, an experience of, of awakening uh, for ma- for many of them. I- explain what I'm talking about. Well, that was another thing I just found fascinating about the story as I was reading David's book. I guess I had always assumed that homophobia was a you know something that was built into the you know the fabric of our history. And what David's book points out is that you know, beginning even before World War II, in the years of the uh, uh, Depression, at a time when the government was uh, adding a huge number of new jobs, Washington was becoming this, this boom town. Uh, the federal payroll was increasing dramatically. And a lot of the people who moved to Washington, D.C. to take these new jobs, disproportionately, uh, they were gay. And a couple of reasons for that, uh, gay single people, it was easier for them to pull up stakes from wherever they were living and move to Washington. But uh, yeah, also a good number of them wanted to leave their small towns and move to a place where they would find greater acceptance. And in fact, Washington had a quite a vibrant gay community in those years. Then World War II comes along, and the mass mobilization of the population again had the effect of pulling millions of young men and women out of their small towns, out of their homes, and put them in you know, these same-sex situations in which, for the first time, a lot of gay men and lesbians had the opportunity to find uh, you know, other people like themselves. And you know, that created uh, you know, quite a growing um, uh, community of, of, of gay people. One of the things I uh, appreciated in your film was uh, a moment when we see photographs from the period, quite a few, more than a dozen, I would say, which would appear to show um, young gay men in the Navy or, or, or young gay women in, in, in the Navy uh, posing together, arms around each other, uh, and we just it, it it's it's not the kind of thing that we think of when we think of that era in America. Well, it's true, and you know the military, particularly at the height of the war, was was um, you know looking the other way when there were instances of uh, gay relationships with within the ranks because. Frankly, you know, we needed people to to fight, and they didn't have the luxury of necessarily doing mass, um, uh, you know, removal of, of of gay men and lesbians. It wasn't really until after the war that the the military really cracked down on homosexuality within the ranks. Mm. But uh, the as one character in in the film says, uh, who came from a very small town, he said. I had no idea how many people were gay until I joined the Navy. Right. And, you know, the line gets a laugh at, uh, at theaters frequently, but it, it really is, uh, you know, speaks to what was happening at the time. Right. And I must say, too, that from this part of the film, a, a very moving moment is when we hear from the journal of, of someone by the name of, of Lad Forrester. Uh, and he would be someone who welcomed the opportunity to come to Washington, D.C., uh, and and take a job there and and there in Washington D.C. he found a, a a community of 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 gays that that he had no idea existed and uh, from this journal entry he he attends his first party with men dancing together and so on and uh, you quote his journal as him saying 
I could not hold back tears. I mean, how profoundly moving it was uh, for him to, to see a sight like that and realize that he had a community uh, and something he had never experienced in his life before, we presume. Exactly. I mean, he's an, he's an example of someone who grew up, uh, as he said in his journal, in a small Mississippi River town. And, uh, you know, I'm certain he had never met another gay person. And uh, suddenly he is there in Washington seeing, meeting people like himself and uh, you know, being able to make a personal connection for the first time. And, it, uh, you know, that's, that's a story that uh, was repeated time after time. World War II ends, and America finds itself uh, in a very, very prosperous, optimistic period. But very quickly, there is this terrible fear, which becomes paranoia, uh, regarding the threat of communism, the threat of spies. Uh, Explain how this red scare is transformed into this lavender scare. What was the, in a sense, sort of the mechanism by which that occurred? Well, the concern was that, uh, the initial concern was that communists were infiltrating the federal government. You know, Russia had been our ally during World War II, but uh, in the years um, a- after the war, this um, yeah, our relationship obviously with them deteriorated. And, yeah, so there was, there, there was concern about uh, spies and, and communists infiltrating the government. The theory then became that uh, gay people, and there were, there were many more homosexuals working in the government than there had been uh, communists at the time, but the thought was that if you're gay, you could be susceptible to blackmail by an enemy agent, and you might divulge government secrets uh, in, in exchange for being able to keep your sexuality uh, secret. And so there was suddenly this uh, campaign to try to identify and then remove all gay people who were, who were working for the government. One of the most chilling aspects of your film is when you share with us what amount to brief excerpts from some of the files compiled about some of these uh, men and women who ultimately were dismissed from their positions. And there is something very, very cold about the language and, and, and also uh, intensely offensive language uh, sometimes used uh, that uh, behind the guise of sort of an official process, which was really not due process at all. Explain kind of the mechanism by which these dismissals would occur. Well, e- each individual agency had its own investigative team that was looking into the personal lives of its employees. And, you know, leads would come from a bunch of different places. Uh, at times, agents would stake out when they left the bar uh, and then question them. They would take down license plate nu- uh, plate numbers of cars parked in the vicinity of um, of gay bars. But what was the most effective tool was if if an agent had uh, someone before them who they were interviewing who they believed was gay, they would say, give us the names of five other people. Uh, you know, we'll go easy on you, but just give us the names of five other people who are gay and, you know, conceivably we'll, you know, we'll let you go and go about your business. And it was through that procedure that the government build, built this 
you know, huge, you know, they were able to identify a huge number of people. And, you know, interestingly enough, it was the close relationships that developed during the Depression and, and the war years among the gay community that really worked against the interests of the community because everybody did know everybody else or know, know some other people who were gay. And, you know, the years of, of the Lavender Scare really were, uh, were terrifying for gay people in Washington because, you know, n no one knew when someone would, uh, you know, identify them to, uh, to save themselves. Right. Yeah, it's probably important for us to remember just what what a what a frightening time that was uh f for just about anybody not only if you were in a sense a, a a likely target but also if you even knew someone who might be a likely target and and might be uh, seen as guilty by association in, in 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 some way it's just terrible to think about what it was like to live within that kind of environment and well, of course one of the you know, one of the um, investigators who we spoke to said that if they identified a heterosexual who, as he put it, who knew and identified with homosexuals, they would investigate the heterosexual person. So it was really the message was, you know, was sent by the federal government, stay away from gay people because you'll be in trouble if you you know, if you're found to be associating with a gay person. I have to mention that uh, one of the people that you interview in the film is a John W. Haynes, who was an official with the State Department. He was one of the participants in this process of whatever you want to call it, eradication of gays from the ranks of federal employees. And, and uh, in this interview, which I don't believe you are conducting, someone else is conducting, but he is, in a sense, given the opportunity to express regret over what he did all those decades earlier. And uh, he really expresses no regret whatsoever, which is a truly chilling moment in the film. Well, he was uh, not only a, a participant, he was number three in the State Department at the time. So it was, uh, and director of security. So it was his office and his decision specifically to administer this program and we were very lucky to be able to track him down and ask him if he wanted to be interviewed and you know like the other government investigators who we approached we were kind of expecting him to say you know no why would i want to be a you know part of this why would i want to talk about this now and to our surprise he said of course come on up and it was only when we did the interview that it finally dawned on us that well the reason you know, there's these these the government officials were still so happy to talk to us. Was every single one of them defended what they did in, in the 1950s and 60s and, and beyond, and um, you know, still to this day don't see anything wrong with it. Uh, they they all said, look, we wouldn't do the same thing today because society has changed, and so we wouldn't have the same policy in effect now. But what we did in the 1950s. That was the right thing to do, and it was the interview was conducted by Jill Landis, my associate director, and uh, it, uh, as you say, it was chilling. We, we, you know, we gave Mr. Haynes several opportunities to uh, to say this was this was wrong, and that's not his opinion. Right. And it was 
we're very grateful to be able to, you know, have him express that and include that in the film. It's a, an important part of the story. And, of course, it's important to say, and your film says it more than once, that there is not one single bit of evidence that any gay person working for the federal government was ever threatened with blackmail. I mean, this thing that they were so fearful of and a fear out of which they fired 10,000-plus men and women, uh, it sprang from a fear of a threat that was, in fact, non-existent or, or, or had never, ever occurred before. I mean, that's, that's what makes this uh, really maddening. Well, when the policy was put into effect, they, there hadn't been a single case. And a, a study later in, uh, that was done later in the 1970s, looking back on that time period, uh, as well could not find a single case of a gay man or lesbian uh, submitting to blackmail uh, in, the, in the face of uh, pressure from an enemy agent. The, the thing, to point out, thing to point out, though, is that, in, in fact, these people were susceptible to blackmail, and it was our own government that was blackmailing them. Because very frequently, government investigators would say to them, you know, cooperate with us, turn in your friends, or we're going to go, we're going to expose you to your, you know, to your family, to your neighbors. And so the exact tool that they were afraid enemy agents were going to use against, against uh, gay men and lesbians, government investigators themselves were using. Hmm. We meet some of the people uh, whose lives were... Uh so so sadly affected by this, uh, but we want to spend the last couple of minutes of this interview talking about the inspiring figure who is really the first person to stand his ground and say, no, I will not accept this injustice, Dr. Franklin E. Uh, Kameny. And um, we hear from him directly, and we also hear excerpts from a number of letters that he wrote uh, as these events were engulfing his life. Uh, explain to our listeners why he is such an important person that all of us need to know. Well, Frank was a uh, Frank was an astronomer. He had a degree from astronomy from Harvard University, and he was a he was a, a brilliant scientist. But he was also single-minded and determined. And as he uh, used to say, if uh, the the world uh, and, and and he differed on a matter, then you know after giving it careful second thought, if that was still the case, he was right and the world was wrong. Uh, probably five thousand people, we estimate, had been fired by the government before Frank Kameny got pulled into this, and he got pulled into it because he was sitting at his desk one day and two investigators came up to him and said, "We have." evidence that you're a homosexual, what, um, you know, what do you have to say in your defense? And he had no defense because he was gay, and he was fired from his job. But unlike the 5,000 or so people who had been fired before him, who all went quietly, Frank said, I'm, I'm not going to go quietly. I'm not going to give you my resignation, I'm, you know, I'm going to fight this because I think this policy is wrong and I think I deserve to have my job. And you know, he fought his firing through administrative channels, through the courts, 
At some point, when no lawyers would represent him any longer, he wrote his own petition to the uh, to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, he lost it every step of the way and never got his job back. But in the process, he wound up being a gay activist who really devoted every minute of the rest of his life uh, to the fight for gay rights. You have, among other things, uh, transcriptions of the first time he testified before Congress as the first openly gay person to testify before Congress. And uh, it is disturbing to uh, hear the, the... undisguised disrespect of of at least some of the congressmen who are listening to him and the forthright way in which he stands up to them is truly inspiring and he also organized some of the first public picketing in front of the white house by a small group of gay men and women uh i mean it it was these efforts began in a sense modestly but courageously and it's important for us to understand how it led to uh, a whole movement uh, and something that he probably never even envisioned might occur. Well, that's absolutely right. You know, we're observing the 50th anniversary uh, this month of the Stonewall Rebellion, which is frequently thought of as the start of the gay rights movement. And, you know, as as important as that event was in the history of, of, of the movement, it's really important, I think, to recognize that there were a small group of courageous people who, years earlier than that, really began this process and really, um, you know, set in motion what would become the, the modern uh, gay rights movement. And, you know, it's really interesting to think, you know, what what would have started the movement and uh, where would society have uh, ha- have been in the years that followed? Mm. The film, again, is The Lavender Scare. It airs tonight, uh, tomorrow night on PBS. The producer and director, Josh Howard. Josh Howard, thank you so much for joining me today on The Morning Show, and thank you so much for creating this powerful and important film. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me.